And then what's immaterial? What is non-material? Um, which is generally what we term as spiritual. So what is, what is material and what is spiritual? Um, or what is non-material? So I'm saying non-material because all, most of the time when we think spiritual, where do our minds go? Our minds go to church, our minds go to um, spiritual things, prayer, fasting, those things. But also, um, these are spiritual things. Love, community, joy, um, all those fruits of the spirit, um, relationships, those things are immaterial. My relationship with, with my wife is immaterial. Well, that's, that means it's spiritual, because it's not physical, it's not material. So Jesus is painting this, this picture here, and what he's not doing is saying that there's uh, a complete dichotomy between the two. He's not saying that physical is over here, and spiritual is way over here. Um, that's called Gnosticism, which is a heresy that, that rose up in the early church that is still kind of prevalent in our society today, where, where people say, well, physical is, is bad, uh, physical is evil, and all that is spiritual is good, and we want to we chase up that. Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying that, that what is physical is bad. He's just saying, let's, let's reorient ourselves. These things are, these things are connected. So, um, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? The physical isn't bad. If I was up here, like, my clothes are physical. If I thought clothes are bad and I was up here, that would be bad. <laughs> like, for you guys. I only know one person in this room that might like that. <laughs> she probably would say no. She's dead right now. So, like, physical isn't bad. Physical isn't inherently evil. Jesus is saying what we do with the physical sometimes makes it that way. Okay? Follow me with that. So, that's what Jesus is, is, is getting at here. Today we're going to say, so Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. He says, serve God. He says, your eye needs to be full of light, not darkness. The question you're left with when you read that is, well, how? And that's the question we're going to deal with today. We're going to focus on community. So there's so many applications of this passage. Um, this passage, uh, a, lot of, a lot of times people look at it as just about money. It's not just about money, although that's, a, that's an application of this passage. It's not just about material things, although that's an application of this passage. We're going to say, well, how do we do this? How do we do this, Jesus? How do we serve God? How do we make sure our, our eyes are taking in the light and our bodies full of light, not darkness? How do we store up treasures in heaven instead of on the earth? And the answer I'm going to give you this morning is community, is building relationships. So um, I don't know if you guys realize this. You, you probably do. Maybe you haven't thought about this. Um, but we live in a really individualistic society. I did, I did my, my thesis in, when I was in university, in university I did a thesis, and I did it on cultural values between two different countries. And one country was extremely collectivistic, um, one country was extremely individualistic. And talk about how that came out through advertising. I did my degree in, in marketing. And, and talk about how that comes out through advertising. So, um, if you look at our world today, you can see that, uh, specifically in Canada, that Canada is a pretty individualistic society. There's been a study done that, that says, uh, that rates countries on individualism. There's different factors that go into that. Um, but Canada is number four on the country list. Only three countries beat Canada out for an individualistic nature. Can you guys guess what those are? Those three countries. US. What are you guys saying? 
<laughs> why, why would we have the America pick? So America's number one. Uh, America scored scored uh, 91 out of 100 on the IDB scale. Canada is at 80, so it's not that far behind. The other two countries that beat it, what do you think they are? UK. UK is number two um, at 89, so 91 US, UK. Um, the US, the US is more individualistic than the UK because they kicked them out of the country. And <laughs> that's why they have a higher point, I guess. Um, so there's, there's, the, <laughs> there's the US, 91, UK. Germany? Germany, no, that's a good guess. France, no. Um, Japan, no. Japan, most, most Asian cultures are very collect, collectivist. Yeah, this down under, it's the Aussies. So, and then it's, and then it's Canada. So that just shows you, um, if you look at those four countries, what do they have in common? Rich. Huh? They're white. <laughs> English, yeah. Rich. They're white. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they are, they're all British, British colonies. Um, think, think broader. Culturally, what do they have in common? They live in the top 40. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're more top 40, that's right. Um, they're very materialistic. They're wealthy, right? They're, they're wealthy Western countries that are very materialistic. So Jesus is, that doesn't mean that, that Asian countries aren't that way. That doesn't mean that African countries aren't that way. Missing, I spent time in Africa this summer, and I was blown away by how materialistic the culture was that we were in. It doesn't look like that on the surface, but um, underneath the surface, very, it's, it's in us, right? It's, it's in us. We want things. We want physical, material possessions. That's why Jesus is addressing us. That's why he's saying, stop doing that. And that's, that's how this, this is trans, that's, can be translated. You know, it says, do not, but it's, he's saying, stop. This is what you are doing. You're storing up treasures on earth, and stop. Just stop doing that, he's saying. There's, um, there's a whole branch of psychology called community psychology, where they, they focus on uh, looking at humans and figuring out why we need community. So they've termed something called sense of community. And there's four elements that go into a sense of community. There's membership, there's influence, there's integration and fulfillment, and then there's shared emotional connection. So that's what they say makes a community. Membership, basically, Basically that we have a common system, that there's, there's some boundaries around membership, there's emotional safety here, um, influence, that we trust each other, that the leaders um, are trusted, and that the leaders trust the group, um, and input goes back and forth. That's, that's important in community, they say, in a sense of community. The third thing, integration and fulfillment of needs, that's basically shared values, that we share common values. That, um, that your needs, that for instance, uh, community. You're, you're longing for community. So maybe that's why, that's why you plug into Trinity Life. Maybe um, you, you, need, you need the word of God spoken to in your life. So Trinity Life is a big part of that, things like that. Um, and then shared emotional connection. And there's like a long list of seven features that, that go into that. That's basically like, we're in this together. 
wins together. If someone is hurting the community, then it hurts us. If someone is burdened in the community, then we might have to carry that burden. So those four things go into going to community. So why, why is community, if we're talking about spiritual disciplines, why is community a spiritual discipline that needs to be? Community is an innate characteristic. Like we were created for it. Genesis says that we were created in the image of God. And when he says that, he says, we created male and female, we did this. So you see instant community from the beginning. God is perfect community. Trinity life, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's, he's, he's in perfect community. He's invited us into that community. And that's the community we live out. That's the community that we've been invited into to partake of. So um, the problem is, even though we want community, we receive fulfillment from community, and we're created for it, that's why we receive fulfillment from it, um, we have an individualistic bent because of sin. We just want, we want to push ourselves forward. We're selfish. That's, that's a vice that, that I think all humans have in common, that we're selfish. We don't, we don't lift up the community all the time uh, instead of ourselves. And that's why Paul hits on this all throughout the scriptures, that community is so important to the body, that unity is so important to the body. So let's walk through this passage. <clears throat> Jesus says, stop doing this. Stop Stop uh, storing up treasures on earth. And he says something significant. He says, why are you doing this? Because it's just going to get destroyed. It's going to get eaten by moths. It's going to become corroded. It's going to be eaten away. And that, that, that word there for rust is actually a more general word for just it's going to be eaten away. Um, you know, or it's going to be stolen. Like, that's going to happen. He says, if you store treasures in heaven, that's, that's not going to happen. It's, it's completely different. Um, so how do we do that? How do we stop doing that? And why, why, is, why is that his command? Remember, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's been talking about what the kingdom of heaven is, how it's being ushered in, and how we see that lived out in our lives. And he's saying that we're in the last days. That's what his... That's what he's talking about. When a kingdom happens, it's prophesied from the Old Testament. These are the last days. This is the final time. So he's saying it's foolish to store up stuff here. So he's not, what he's not saying is don't save. Don't be prudent with material possessions. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't hoard. Don't be selfish. He's saying you've been, you've been, given, you've been giving these things as stewards and, and operate with them freely. So, have you guys ever seen the show Doomsday Preppers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a show where these people live. Um, I've only seen Americans on this show. <laughs> they, they, they know Doomsday is, is coming. They feel like any day now, the world's going to get blown up by a nuke. Um, you know, comets are going to come from the sky. There's going to be massive, you know, whatever. Whatever they believe, they, they believe the world's going to end any day now. So they have these massive facilities they've built under their homes as storage units, bomb shelters for when the world ends, so that they can survive in the shelter. And they store up, you know, canned foods, flares, I'm sure, water, um, all this stuff. 
Um, so there's one episode, I've seen like two episodes of this. So there's one episode where this couple, all they did every month was went and bought crates of alcohol. Like just crates of it. Now they don't drink. They're like, we don't drink. But we, we know that in the new world, this is how they call it. We know that in the new world, this is gonna be currency, it's gonna be good for medical purposes, and we're gonna to wanna to get drunk. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but they should, because that new world is gonna suck. <laughs> That's the point, like, they're storing up all, this, all these things for what? Survive. Yeah, why? It's gonna be them and some cockroaches. <laughs> and some sharks in the ocean. Uh, because them and the other, the other people in, in the US who built those bomb shelters are the only ones who are gonna survive. And then, what do you have left? Where's your community? Yeah, you got your alcohol, and you can, you can barter with, I don't know, somebody, um, you know, a long ways away. But you're left with, with just your material possessions. And the question that this brings up to mind is, what are you storing up? If you're a doomsday prepper, and you may be bent that way, I don't know. You may have one of those in your, in your basement. Um, so, uh, but if you're a doomsday prepper, what would you be storing up? Closure. <laughs> That's what you value. <laughs> Give that up. Well, um, ask yourself that question. What would you be storing up? You know, the money that we hold on to, if something like, like that were, were to happen, they'd be worthless. Because the economies would be gone. Everything would, would, would change in an instant. So ask yourself that question, what are you storing up? And now, how do we store treasures in heaven? And that's, that's through community. You know, there's three, there's three metaphors God uses as he writes the scriptures for, for the church. The first one is the house of God. Israel, the house of God is, is, is the church, and it's talked about this through the temple, through Old Testament times, and then of the church in, in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, Israel, if you guys realize this, but Israel was an extremely wealthy nation throughout the scriptures. I mean, tons of gold, tons of silver, tons of copper, bronze, all these precious metals, gems, all these things, even the wood they used, it wasn't like plywood, it was like real nice, like balsamic cedar. Yeah, no, that's good. They would go and get the cedars of Lebanon, right? They would go and get those cedars. So, um, yeah, they used the best, they used the best things. And they used all this when Solomon built the, the temple. Um, it's estimated that it was somewhere between like 25 and 30 billion dollars went into the building of the temple. That's crazy. And, and in the temple, they would store all of their material possessions. They would store everything. They would give all this gold, they'd give all this stuff, and they'd store in the temple so that the temple had, it was like the federal bank, basically. Um, it was like Fort Knox, right, where they put, put everything. Um, so when a country came in and they, they oppressed the Israelites, where do you think they went first? Well, they, they went to the temple, and they destroyed it. And they destroyed it. And that's why you see throughout the Old Testament, destruction, rebuild, destruction, rebuild. They rebuilt the temple for the last time. And the last time it was destroyed was AD 70 when Rome came in 
and just sacked Jerusalem. And they burned it down. They took everything, everything back to Rome and left Israel with nothing. And what are they left with? And you see this, this metaphor of the house of God. And, and through the Old Testament, Israel had thought, the house of God? Well, that's where we store all of our valuables. And they're, they're right. They want to build up the house of God. We want to make it something of value, right? But what they missed was the spiritual side of it. And you see Paul redefine this house of God in the New Testament to a household of God. And the term he uses is this word that means that it's a household, it's a family. So what you stepped into this morning is that it's not a building, it's not a place, it's not where we store all our valuables, but we do have something that's immensely more valuable, and that's family. That's what the house of God is, it's family. That's why when Isaac hurts, I hurt. That's... treasures on earth, if they're stingy, if they're selfish, they're like somebody fumbling around in the dark. And then below, you know, the person who's serving two masters, he's saying, they're full of darkness, they're unstable in all their ways. They're, they're just going about doing one thing here, doing one thing there, and they're double-minded. And a lamp, this is peculiar phrasing. If you read this, and you're kind of like, well, what's, what's he saying there? Um, a lamp directs the body. So he's saying your eye is a lamp, and where you hold out the lamp is where you're going to walk, right? So if I'm holding out a flashlight in front of me, I'm not going to walk sideways like this, right? Um, so he's saying that the, if your eye is a lamp, it's directing your body. Where's, where's my um, optometrist? There he is. So there's, you can back me up on this. There's... In your eye, there's a part called. <laughs> he's like, I don't remember this. <laughs> there's a part called the phobia, and it's like, it's like really, really, really tiny, and it only focuses on one thing. And so our eyes are built that way to only focus on one thing. You're like, well, if I look straight, I can see all this other stuff. Yeah, you can, but try reading. Try reading that way. Try focusing on the middle of the page and reading up here. Like I tried it this week. It like hurt my brain. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Uh, you can only read with the, what you're focused on. And Jesus knows this. He knows that he, he created our bodies. So he knows this. He knows that the eye is that lamp that directs us, that guides us, 
that um, that takes us that takes us wherever we need to go. So if your eye is good, then your body's gonna be good. If your eye is bad, then you're gonna close darkness. Missy and I went to a restaurant a couple weeks ago called called O Noir, and um, it's a really cool place. So I surprised her. We went there. I didn't tell her what it was. And it's a restaurant where you eat completely in the dark. I completely. It's underneath this hotel. They have blind wait staff, and they lead you in on like a comic train. You're like going in. You go in this door, it closes behind you in this little room, and you go to another door, and the dining room is completely and utterly dark. You can't see this. You think you can, because your brain thinks you can, but you can't. Um, so we're sitting there in the dark, eating, having a good time. Like, I wish I had, <laughs> I wish I had like night vision goggles, because it's completely dark. I mean, I'm eating like this far from my plate. Like my face is like, because I'm eating, trying to, try eating in the dark with a fork. Just close your eyes and try with a fork. You can't do it. Um, so I'm like down on the plate like this. I mean, people are probably, I mean, if you, if you had just turn on the lights all of a sudden, People are all slouching everywhere. Um, girls got their pants on buttons. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just just a girl. Um, I mean, guys are you know doing whatever. I mean, guys do scratching stuff. I, um, I mean, everyone. You, I have no idea what it looks like um, the whole time. So there's two things. It's kind of free because you just do whatever. Um, everyone was talking really loud in there. <laughs> it's like, like <laughs> you lose one sense and you overcompensate. Um, the guy across the dining room was, he yelled at one point to his date, I think I'm done. <laughs> um, and then like later on, this, this girl was getting ready to leave and um, she couldn't find her purse, and she starts freaking out. She's like, where's my purse? They stole my purse. I don't know where it is. It's gone. Her date's like, just check the floor. And she's like, oh, here it is. <laughs> How do I know everything's in it? I don't know. So it, it's just, it's, it's free, but it's also like, I felt nervous the whole time. I felt un uncomfortable. I felt someone was standing like, right here next to me the whole time. Um, I felt like I could hear someone the whole time right there. Um, so it was an interesting experience. Um, but it was, we had a good time. We had a good date. And I think community happened. So can community happen in the dark? Yeah, sure. Sure it can. Do we need light? Um, I don't know if we need light. But can true community happen in the dark? I don't think so. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there's light and there's darkness. And we're missing something. You know, you look at communities that, and when I'm talking about light, I'm talking about Jesus now. That Jesus says he's the light, that we're the light, that the church is the light. And you look at communities that aren't centered around Jesus. They're all missing something. And I'm not saying the church is perfect but it's a step in the right direction because we're looking at a perfect God who's created uh, a bride that is supposed to be blind, supposed to be spotless, 
unblemished, and that bride is the church. And if you look at communities like, like fraternities, fraternities are great, sororities, great, but they're missing something. Most of them are missing some genuine form of community. It's all about other stuff. Um, there's, there's other examples, monasteries. Like monasteries, those are, those are supposed to be centered around Jesus, but they're missing something. Convents, they're missing something. Families, families are communities. Families sometimes are missing something. And the church is the perfect community. It's not defined by ethnicity, it's not defined by um, sexuality, it's not defined by nationality. It shouldn't be defined by denominations, although our church, the church in the West today looks very splintered, but it's not supposed to be defined by even denomination. Because Jesus transcends that. His body transcends that. The temple transcends that. So this is a, the second metaphor, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see this talked about throughout, throughout the scriptures. And the temple of the Holy Spirit makes you think automatically place. Right? It does. It just makes you think that. But the word that's used for temple in, in the New Testament is, there's two words for temple. And this word refers to what's called the Holy of Holies. Now, in the temple in the Old Testament, there's an, an outer court, an inner court, uh, some other stuff, a holy place. And then the Holy of Holies was a separate place behind a veil that only one person, once a year, could enter. And that's the high priest. He's the only person to go in there every year. Um, this was post-Moses. When Moses was entering the tabernacle, he would go in there whenever he wanted to. Because he was going in there to commune with God. And that's the word that's used. That word of the Holy of Holies. So, when the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's saying that God is communing here. When you as an individual, having Jesus are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, that means God is in you. And that we don't need to go to a place anymore. We don't need to go past that veil anymore. When, that, when Jesus died, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Um, literally, physically, it was torn in the temple. Um, and metaphorically. Because <laughs> the scriptures talk about it as well. The veil was lifted off of our hearts. So... Um, that's what he's talking about there. So that's the second metaphor, that what we have here is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that God is communing here, that we are here for something special, and that's because God is in our presence. The last, the last verse here talks about two masters. And he says, you can't serve two masters. That word there is, is um, really powerful um, in the original language. It's saying you can't be a slave to two different people. I can't be, I can't be, um, I can't be Missy Slade and Linda Slade. I mean, they have different, they have different things they want me to do. What if Missy says, go do the dishes, and Linda says, go wash my clothes? Well, I can't, I can't do both. I'm devoted to one. So he's saying here that you're a slave, right? And you can't be a slave to do two different things. And that, I know that, that, uh, that word has some bad connotations. That word has uh, some, some really poor things associated with it. And Jesus here is, is redeeming that. He says, 
You can't, you can't do that. You can't be a slave to do different things. You need to serve God. Or you're serving the other. You can't do both at the same time. The body of Christ is the third metaphor that's used in the scriptures for, for, who, for who we are as a community, as a church. And as a body, we can't be operating in two separate ways. Even if we had two different heads, I've seen a double-headed snake at the San Diego Zoo in, in California, and the snake can only go in one direction. Even if this head wants to go this way and this one wants to go this way, the body can only move one way. So, as the body of Christ with one head, Jesus Christ, we can only move in one direction. And he's saying, community is essential in unity here. And as a body of Christ, we're defined by that. We're defined, we're people defined by unity. And we're different because we're defined by something greater than ourselves. You know, we're different from a fraternity because we're defined by the God of the universe. And we're different from from a family unit because together we're a family unit defined by something greater than ourselves. And that's the church. That's the community. That's what this is all for here today. This is what we're trying to build here today. Just relationships. So if you stepped into this and it was completely different, it's because it is. The church is, the church is completely different from, from the world. We're trying to cultivate something here uh, that, yeah, we may be able to have a shadow of, a glimpse of, out there in the world, but this is where genuine, true community is going to happen, in the church. And I'm not talking about Sunday morning. You know, when Adam prayed for, for Body Life groups earlier, um, this is a part of that. Body Life groups is a part of that. Where you are in your work is a part of that. Where you are in your family is a part of that. Those are all things that, that we can use to unite the body of Christ. So Trinity Life is going to be a, a church that grows by community. We're not going to be a church that, that grows by, um, you know, awesome worship music. We're not going to be a church that grows by awesome <coughs> teaching and preaching. We're not going to be a church that grows by, um, you know, doing spectacular events. We're going to be a church that grows by genuine community. We're going to be a church that grows by loving each other, by faithfulness. In the Proverbs it says, let yourselves be defined by steadfast love and faithfulness. And wear them around your neck. He says, like, like a big, when I read that, what brings to mind is a yoke. Like something that people are going to notice when they see you, just a big thing, that you're defined by steadfast love and faithfulness. And when you are, he says, you will win favor by those around you. That you'll win, that you'll win their favor. That God's favor will go before you, and you'll win the favor of men. So as a church, that's what we want to grow by. We can't just say, Jesus loves you to people, if we don't love each other. <laughs> we can't say, Jesus welcomes you with open arms to him, if we don't even do that with each other. We can't say, Jesus is so joyous uh, and he wants, he wants you to be his son and his daughter if we don't even smile when we see someone uh, on Sunday or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, throughout the week, right? There's, um, 
There's four turns of the heart that this guest talks about. Uh, his name is Robert Coleman. He's, he's a, an evangelist, a, a professor of evangelism. And he says there's four turns of the heart that someone who's outside of the church, who's outside of um, their relationship with God, who is on a journey of faith, um, experiences. He says there's a turning of the heart to Jesus as Lord. There's a turning of the heart to the, to the community of faith. There's a turning of the heart to the scriptures. And there's a turning of the heart to living on mission for Jesus. And those can happen in any order, he says. So, when someone walks in, when someone walks into the church, they may not know anything about Jesus. And that's okay. But what they may see is genuine community happen, and their heart is turned to that. He says all four need to happen eventually, but they can happen in any order. They, what, happened, what happened to Missy was she read this first, and that was what turned her heart to everything else. She didn't care for the community. She didn't want it. She thought it was weird. <laughs> she thought it was awkward. She thought it was weird. She didn't want to be a part of it. But she opened the word of God and the spirit grabbed her heart through it. And then those other turns happened. For me, it was, it was the community. I walked in, um, saw the community being the community, loving each other, observing the observing communion, which we're about to do. Um, this is an expression of community, communionness. Um, and that's what that's what God used to draw me to Himself. So um, we're gonna we're gonna enter, time, enter this time right now um, of communion of community, and I want you to examine your hearts during this time. We don't do this very often during communion. We're gonna do communion at each table today. Um, we don't do this very often in communion, but I was reminded of this this past week by one of you guys. So, examine your hearts this morning. Take this time and, and ask God, what am I storing up? Am I storing up treasures in heaven? Am I storing up treasures on earth? And why does that matter? And ask Him. Just let, let God speak to you in this moment. Um, let God bring up, bring up sin that's been, that's been preventing you from actually having genuine community and enjoying genuine community. That may be, who, who knows what that is in your heart? That may be pride. We talked about that last week. That may be selfishness. We talked about that uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, that may be just something silly that happened this past week. Let God cleanse you of that, release that, um, and take communion around your tables. Uh, why don't you invite the band up? Why don't you guys come up? If you're, if you're a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, communion for you is a proclamation of the gospel. The bread represents Christ's body that was broken for you. And so you'll see one loaf there that you'll tear off, um, that we're one body, and we're tearing it off, and this is Christ's body that was broken for you. The, 
the cup there represents Christ's blood that was shed for you. So when you do this, you're proclaiming the gospel. You're saying, Jesus, your body was broken for me, and I accept that, and I celebrate that. And then you're dipping it in, in the cup and saying, your blood was shed for me, and I accept that. I celebrate that. I accept your forgiveness. And I just want you to change my life. So if you're not a believer, um, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, and that's okay. The first time, first time I was in church, went with my family uh, growing up. My parents had just become believers, and they took communion the next time we were in we were in a church service. And since they did, I wanted to take it too. And uh, my dad stopped me and said, "No, we can't do this." And, I didn't understand. So I asked him afterwards, and we talked about why, why I couldn't take communion, but now he could. And he just shared the gospel and said, because that represents something that you don't believe in yet. He said, that's okay. I want you to believe in this, and you have the opportunity to. But until you say that Jesus is your God, that he's the Lord of your life, that you've accepted his forgiveness, that... Um, you accepted his sacrifice of his body for your sins, then you need to refrain from taking communion. So, um, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, it's okay. It's okay if you don't take communion. Because you don't want to proclaim something that you don't believe in. But observe, observe the body being the body. Observe community happening around uh, the communion table this morning. So, the band's going to lead us in a song. Um, take communion at your table when you're ready, and then we'll, you can stay seated, and um, we'll finish out the service with singing.